Good morning. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to both Medical Grand Rounds and the keynote address of today's inaugural uh, symposium in transgender medicine. Dr. Norman Spack is here, and we're delighted to have him as our speaker. He'll be introduced to you in a moment by Dr. Jack Turco. There are no financial conflicts of interest disclosed for this uh, presentation. Jack Turco, who will uh, present him, is a professor of medicine in the section of endocrinology here in our Department of Medicine. He has been the long-term director of Dartmouth College's Health Service, and he has had in his practice an interest uh, in many areas of endocrinology and has specifically been interested in transgender medicine. And we are delighted that you've put this symposium together with your colleagues. Uh, we're all going to learn a lot. So come tell us about Dr. Spock. Well, maybe not Dr. Spock, but Dr. Spack, I will. So uh, <laughs> thanks for everybody coming. And I'm glad everybody was able to find the room. That's wonderful. So Norm uh, is Boston uh, born and bred. And we've already talked Red Sox and Bruins, and we won't go into that. Uh, but after high school, he listened to Horace Greeley and went west, and he made it as far as Williamstown, Massachusetts, where he did his <laughs> undergraduate degree at Williams, and then went north to Rochester to join up with our own uh, Lee Witters in med school. But like a true Bostonian, he ended up going back to Boston and trained at uh, Boston City Hospital and also Children's Hospital in both peds, adolescent medicine, and then acquired an interest uh, also in chronology and then acquired an interest in seeing transgendered uh, patients. And I think Norm will tell the story that he started to see a lot of adults and worried about what he was seeing as far as baggage and other issues. And I think then he started to turn his focus and has said that since about 2000, he's really concentrated on the whole standards of care for the adolescent patient. And this has been a real game changer for anybody in transgender medicine to know how important this is. And, and Norm is really a, a leader of that. When we, when we decided to have this conference, we were trying to think of a big name to, to draw a big audience. And gosh, we picked the right one. But, but Norm was our first choice. And it was wonderful that he came up here. Um, so in about 2007, he co-founded the, uh, get this name right now, Man, uh, the Gender Management Service at Children's Hospital, the GEMS, which is really probably very revolutionary for the United States. Uh, and uh, this, that's been modeled. And Ben Bow, one of our fellows, is in the process of trying to work to get adolescents seen in a clinic at, at here. So Noam, I've sat in the audience for the last 30 years, and one thing I've noticed about Grand Rounds is that what is said by the person introducing the speaker is forgotten in about five minutes. So I'm not going to do any more of that, and I'm just going to invite you up here to tell you, tell us about your voyage, which I think is not only, you know, very important but very heroic, and uh, another example of Boston Strong. Mm -hmm. So. I'm over 70, you know, you're testing my press we open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Okay, it's a thrill to be here. My God, standing room only. Um, th there's almost too much to say, but if I, I don't say it, I just was informed last week that a TED talk that I gave regionally was picked up by the um, TED International last week. Uh, and it's an 18, 16 to 18 minutes uh, 
It's a terrifying experience, actually, because you have nothing to no, nothing lean on, no slides, no whatever, and, and do it, but uh, in front of a live audience. But um, I just got called last night that then within a week there have been uh, over 500,000 views. Um, and they, ex so, so clearly this, and uh, I'm not saying that's because it's a great talk. I'm saying because this clearly shows an interest, an international interest in, in this field. This, um, I'm delighted to be among people who are in primary care, who help work with primary care, uh, as well as some endocrinologists. Um, I want you to understand uh, that while I'm going to talk about some basic science, I'm going to talk about some uh, modes of treatment, I'm going to talk, but in, embedded in this is going to be how I got to, to do this. Because by and large, you have to understand that I started to do this at the, I was in my mid-40s in 1985, and I was in practice, in private practice in adolescent medicine, and because I took care of people a little bit older than your average pediatrician, I was willing to take care of someone in their mid-20s because I had a, a very rich ambulatory um, uh, endocrine experience at, with John Kriegler, and I felt comfortable when a two-year graduate of Harvard walked into my office, uh, a genetically female who affirmed a male identity and lived at Harvard as a male with three male roommates who knew the whole story. And even the Harvard registrar back in the 80s was so sensitive to this issue that he asked the, the person to come into the office and, and explain his, his schedule and teachers and times for, for every class he took before every semester so that the registrar would change the name from the female birth name that was still legal to the, to the name Mark and that no teacher would ever see a name uh, Marcy and call that out and embarrass, okay? That's what I call sens sensitivity. Um, I did it because I said to myself, uh, I gotta be about as skilled at doing this as anybody else. I mean, I don't know anything about transgenderism, but I made a deal with Mark that I said, I'll treat you even for nothing if you'll tr teach me. Uh, and, and teach me, as, and we'll sit here as long as you need and as long as I need so I can understand your situation and that of the people in your support group. And I, because after all, I had treated hypogonadal guys, uh, anorchic guys. Uh, I had treated hypogonadal women who were chemotherapy affected, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, the basics really weren't, there were kind of no-brainers. Uh, the, the issue was applying it to this population. But I was in front of me was a guy who by every standard was hypogonadal. The treatment was obvious to reconstitute him hormonally, and then I saw him come out and flourish, and like many of my patients, he not only flourished, he was hired as a male model. Um, so um, it, it taught me so much, including one of my favorite first lines. He went on to marry someone who was born male, had married as a male, had children as a male, divorced as a male, and then affirmed a female identity, still maintaining contact with the children, divorced, and subsequently married Mark, Mark being about 10 years younger. Now, they had... Neither of them, the only surgery anyone had had was that Mark had had a mammoplasty. And there I am thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, I mean, they're having sex, and the, the wife is t titering down her, 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 her um, estrogen levels to, so that she has erectile capacity. And I'm thinking, how, you know, people make 
do what they have to do. But I was trying to, I, I still had my old thinking with me, well, does this mean Mark is really a heterosexual man? Who's a, and I was conflating sexual orientation based on behavior and based on who they were with and who they once were. And they were listen, I, at that point, I started to try to take the term transition out of, out of my vocabulary, unless I'm talking about the process of physically helping a person change, but not say that the person transitioned from male to female. How can you transition from what you already are? These people already were. They're just affirming it. And in my confusion, Mark said, you, you, you're just not getting it. <laughs> You're just not getting it. You, you need the simple statement. I said, believe me, I need the simple statement. He said, between, to explain the difference between sexual orientation, which sometimes nowadays is called sexual identity, by the way, and gender identity. He said, it's like this. Sexual orientation is who you go to bed with. Gender identity is who you go to bed as. <laughs> By and large, it works for the simplistics. I also was influenced in part by a very, uh, um, my father was a very well-known um, religious educator in the Jewish education world. And so I had more of an education than I wanted at the time. <laughs> but, um, but it came back to haunt me in wanting to know more as an adult. And I looked at the teachings of Maimonides, great 12th century, uh, probably greatest physician of his time, who, uh, who actually needed a day job as a physician to the Sultan of uh, Egypt. And in a night job, he wrote a religious commentary. Maimonides wrestled with the issue of, can a man heal a man? Because nowhere in the Old Testament is there any evidence of human healing. It's always human priestly diagnosis and almighty healing. And illness was so often associated with sin. So he was, he's a rationalist between Aristotle and Descartes and Spinoza. And he's um, trying to rationalize, does he have the right to heal? And in typical fashion, he, ha he needs a biblical proof text. Now, you will, when I say this term, you will say, gee, I've heard Obama say this a lot, because you hear this a lot from people who have gone to go to church, and you hear it a lot. Pretty, I've heard a lot from people in African-American churches. But it's a common expression. It comes from Leviticus, and it says, if you see your neighbor bleeding by the side of the road, you shall not stand idly by not stand idly by, you hear that all the time from the president, shall not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. That's not just an allowance to heal. That's a mandate to heal. And as I show you the, the story, as I saw the adults I took care of, I said, I got to do something because these people can't find anyone to treat them and, and they're falling apart. So, so there are many forms of sex and gender when I, I try to keep them apart with sex being more of the biological. Um, sex is what they actually are saying when it's the third word said about you, right? It's a, right, at birth. It's, what it's really saying is, it's got the genitals of a, okay? And, and that's the same thing nowadays that comes with ultrasound. The wonderful New Yorker cartoon where the two couples meeting, one obviously pregnant, the non-pregnant says to the pregnant woman, but do you know it's gender identity? <laughs> <laughs> A great Manhattan one. But there are many forms that are involved in sex. And by these, I mean, you see how physical they are. The genetic sex, chromosomal sex, gonadal sex, phenotypic sex the sex of which you are reared. And then there are, and there are issues that are more related to gender, gender identity. Uh, gender attribution is tricky and is one of the most biggest problems for those who, are who go through the process late. 
And that is, attribution is how people see you when they see you. First impressions. Oh, this person must be trans. Oh, this person what? That is what many of the adults have to, have to deal with and what, what I saw. And then sexual orientation we discussed as being totally different. But I can show you, you know, I've been on the stand, I've been in front of um, legislatures trying to deal with issues, even in Maine they were trying to overturn a public accommodation law and give a restaurateur and a principal of a school the right to, do, to say to a student, you have to use the, the bathroom of your biologic sex. I said, I'm sure if I surveyed this room, I could get a different opinion of what that is from every single person here. But that's how limited their thinking was. So um, I'm showing this as an homage to my mentor, who's still very much with us and with me and advising me and supporting me. And that's John Kriegler, age 95, who used to come up here and teach a course in developmental biology and growth uh, to the to uh, was, was to the medical students or undergraduates, but he and he he loved coming up here, and and um, and he talked about it a lot. And John Kriegler in the late in late 1940s, early 50s, when cortisol became available for treatment, he was the first person to use cortisol as a fellow of Lawson Wilkins in the treatment of 21-hydroxylase deficiency, which is the most common form of severe uh, genital ambiguity or virilization of the female genitalia. Um, what I want to point out to your students, Lee, is something that's always puzzled me in relation to transgenderism. The fact of the matter is, is that we've seen babies born with this condition who are genetically female, who have normal internal female organs, but because they were in an androgen bath between the ages of six and 12 to 12 weeks gestation, they can have a complete closure of their perineum to the point of having a normal penis and a, and a penile urethra. And if it weren't for an astute clinician, uh, uh, pediatrician, noticing no testes in the scrotum, that kid probably would have gone, kids like that used to die because babies are born overloaded with salt, water, and glycogen, and they can hold them for about a week. And then it run, if they're salt losing, they run out, they, and they crash in an adrenal crisis. But on the other hand, they, there are all these in-betweens. And yet, anybody looking at a female would see that this is clearly some kind of an of a in-between. But the males were more likely to die because their genitals didn't look excessively large. Or you know, when you, after the fact, people would say, "Oh yeah, the scrotum's a little bit dark and whatever." Forget it. You don't make that diagnosis on a male on on um, on the basis of physical exam. So that's why this newborn screening includes a test for 17-hydroxyprogesterone, uh, which is just above the block. So this is what happens when you're blocked in your ability to make mineralocorticoid, cortisol, which is responsible for the feedback to ACTH, and you overspill into the androgen pathway, and it, close, it closes everything up. And so here's my point to think about. If the baby is exposed to androgen in the first trimester, it closes up the perineum. So clearly, there are androgen receptors that close up that are seeing androgen, and that's what they do. That's what they're supposed to do in a male, and they're doing it in a female because there's androgen in excess there. But if a baby is only exposed to androgen in the second and third trimester, the perineum does not close up. Only the clitoris enlarges, which says to me that receptors can, can become, uh, are not finite, that they're not fixed. They must re or respond at certain stages and not respond at other stages. Otherwise, they would end up all with a closed perineal cleft. Now, that to me just 
this, it made me think, well, what if that's going on in the brain? I mean, it, what, if, what if it turns out that hormonal levels in utero in some way are related to the development of gender identity later on, just hypothetically? We can't assume that by trapping, even if we were able to sample, what the hormones at levels are, whether we would understand what the receptors are doing, and whether they do it differently over, over the time of gestation. This is how little we know. I'm not going to be around when it's figured out. That's, that's your mandate, is to figure out why that is and how it works. Um, this is the paper that came from that, listed as one of the top 10 papers in the history of the journal Pediatrics in the field of endocrinology, published by Dr. Krigler as, his, as a fellow in 1951. He kept that baby in the hospital for a year to try to figure out how much cortisol was too much to in terms of growth and not enough to prevent salt wasting. And this is Dr. Krigler at just a, probably in his, about 80 at that point. And um, it's, it's very interesting because John Money came down to Hopkins in part because these children were now uh, surviving. And the question, there was a major question. Now that we have these girls all surviving with salt losing, and they were ambiguous genitalia, but they have normal internal organs, what, was the, what would their gender identity be? How they, would their gender identity be affected? How would anything related to their, their gender play or, or whatever be affected? What Money found was that, by and large, although many of the patients were turned out later to be um, a homosexual, uh, the girls almost all had a female gender identity. Uh, and their early childhood play was much more masculine than controls, uh, much more interested in trucks than dolls, whatever. But still affirmed, uh, by and large affirmed, a uh, female identity. And these girls not only didn't have a, not only did they have a high androgen level prenatally, but they had it after, because they were not easy to control this condition. Okay. So if you have somebody like Mark who wants to go from being fem female to an affirmed male, what are, you, what are your goals? Well, first of all, you, if, if you're dealing with someone in, who's even younger, you'd want to stop the puberty if they still have growth so that they can have more bone lay down and possibly reach a more appropriate male height. You know, the average female height is 5'5", five five, but two standard deviations is plus or minus four inches. So you go to a conference of, of uh, female to male individuals, what strikes you is that they look so goddamn normal. They look just like guys and like any other guy, except for the fact that a lot of short people here. <laughs> okay. And in clothing, they look absolutely, you know, in nude, obviously, they don't have genital plastic surgery. You want to suppress menses because it is awful for them. It's a monthly reminder of who they're not. And it's critical. And I've had patients who have a slice in the arm for every period they ever had. And unfortunately, by the time they're 14 or 15, their breasts are really f pretty developed, and that's the age at which too many of them come in. So whether they're going to need, they're all going to need some surgery, whether they're going to be lucky enough to not have to have a submammary, subcostal incisions, it depends on how big they are. But if they're more than a full B, they're going to need a, the equivalent of a total relocation of the areal and nipple complex. There are very few people who can do that operation because you're operating to leave a flat chest, and no reductions want to end up leaving a totally flat chest. And so if they don't know how to place the nipple in a real uh, with some, something under it, then that all sinks into a pothole. There's a plastic surgeon in, um, in Springfield who's brilliant at doing this, and she's the only one I'll let do. Uh, the treatment is actually relatively easy. Give them testosterone. Give him testosterone. Now, it, if you're dealing with somebody who is very, very early in the process, you might want to, and, and not even ready to get testosterone, they're like 
girls are maturing between 10 and 12, ideally you could put them on GnRH analogs to block the release of LH and FSH and stop the pubertal process cold and then buy some time till they're old enough to understand the implications, including fertility, of, te of taking testosterone. But the beauty of treating the female to male is that normative testosterone doses given wisely, which means weekly, which means in my case, I'll show you how I do it with subcutaneous injections that make it so easy, uh, will control their menses usually and will virilize them adequately. So you don't have to use mega doses. Um, and then um, there is one, there are a couple of problems that I need to point out. One is that testosterone alone may not stop menses. If there's a uterus there um, and the patient, it doesn't even matter whether the patient has ovaries, it doesn't matter if they're on GnRH analog. There is enough endometrium which has aromatase in it and will aromatize that estrogen, that testosterone to estradiol. And so even your, you, you look at the blood pa pattern of a patient, you know, he's got a, a testosterone of 450, which is terrific. The libido is great and flowing. When you look at the estradiol level, it's 150 picograms per mil. And how are you going to stop that? So we end up using norethindrone, sometimes tamoxifen, and basically that's one of the reasons why there's an increased risk of endometrial cancer in these patients if they keep their uterus, as would they would have with breasts if they kept their breasts and took testosterone because they'd aromatize locally and increase the risk of, of breast cancer. Um, but at eight, you know, you can't take out anybody's uh, gonads legally until they're 18. And when they get to be 18, we have a wonderful surgeon at the Brigham who is capable of taking, you know, laparoscopically he takes everything out, including the cervix, which means that the patients do not have to go through the indignity of having a pap test ever. So they don't have to go to the gynecologist. So the late Jack Crawford, beloved uh, many years chief, he really was Dr. Kriegler's contemporary and friend. He was head of uh, pediatric endocrine. In one of his last missives to us, uh, when we made reference to treating somebody in a letter uh, with, with IM, he wrote back and said he never gave testosterone IM in his professional life. That was over 50 years. He's, and so he taught us how. He said, because if you, you he, he, the rationale was like this. Test, the only way to get sta completely stable levels of testosterone is to give it weekly. If you give it biweekly, you're going to have super physiologic levels for a few days after and sub-physiologic levels a few days before. Not to mention the patient's got an inch and a half syringe with a 22 gauge. Not too many patients are willing to give that to themselves. Means doctor's office visits, means uh, student health visits, and all that. And why not put the, give it weekly, but make it possible for it to be painless? And so this is what we do. We, we use a 3cc syringe with a 25 gauge, 5 8 inch needle. You, you need that sucker to pull back, so that's why one of the reasons we use a 3cc syringe and inject air. And you know, you're only in a 3cc syringe and you're giving like 50 milligrams a week, you're only drawing a quarter of a cc. And then the, the other reason you want them to have the, the, the 3cc syringe is so that they can hold it like that. And then hit it in a, a lateral butt that they can see. They can't feel it, so that you, they have to be able to see when the, when the plunger hits the end of the it hits the end, and it injects slowly, comes straight out, rub it for about 10 to 15 seconds. The whole damn thing takes five to 10 minutes. You can draw their levels anytime. You don't have to do peak, trough, you don't, pre-dose, nothing. They'll always be the same. If you raise the dose, you have to check the hemoglobin level. Because for a given, a given dose, the hemoglobin will be the same. But if you raise a dose, it could jump up. And, and genetic females are incredibly sensitive to the 
hematopoietic effects of testosterone. I remember it, Lee remembers it, when that was the only treatment for aplastic anemia, was to give, make women hairy in the, for the purpose of raising the hemoglobin. But you can raise their hemoglobin level to 18 if, if you go to 150 a week or something like that. So you've got to be careful because you can sludge. Okay, from male to female, in someone who's fully developed and without the use of uh, GnRH analog is a literal pain in the butt. It is difficult. It is, uh, you know, I mentioned basically that we can suppress the, uh, we can suppress a lot with testosterone, but estrogen just, maybe there's a, maybe there's a, a lesson in here that it seems like all the estrogen in the world can't suppress testosterone. <laughs> Uh, and and th and therefore lies the rub, because even though when testosterone is around, it interferes with estrogen's ability to do much of what you want it to do, i.e., softening of the skin and hair, particularly breast development. One of the reasons so many adults need and ask for breast implants is that they've been on big doses of estrogen and it still hasn't worked to give them a breast. Now. In the teens, they respond much differently because their bodies, I think, are really far more prepared for that to happen. But it happens far better when, that, when testosterone level, as Louis Guerin says, is pushed under the floor. Estrogen can be given in normative doses and will have phenomenal effects, as we've seen. I've never had a patient who's needed breast implants if they've gone through the protocol of having um, started young and were puberly suppressed and didn't have testosterone levels ever get up while they started um, estrogen. So whereas a normative dose of estradiol in the form of 17-beta, and the event, I use 17-beta uh, estradiol, and brand name is Estrace, but the, 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 the generic is just as good. One, I like it for a couple reasons. It is what's used in the assay for estrogen in almost every lab. So if you want to know, you, you can never do an estrogen level on somebody on Premarin, for example, conjugated estrogen. <laughs> the other thing the patients take is um, spironolactone, which don't delude yourself and think that spironolactone is going to suppress the testosterone or it's going to have in a significant way. Spironolactone works on the pilosebaceous unit. And, I mean, it's, it's mainly a mineralocorticoid um, inhibitor. But... Um, and a diuretic, but its effects on the pilosebaceous unit are, uh, take about three to four months. They decrease sweat, they decrease uh, the, oil, the uh, oil in the skin, and most important for people who are spending $120,000 in their lifetime on electrolysis, it decreases the, it increases the, um, decreases the rate of growth of the unwanted hair, and it makes it finer, which makes it a lot easier for the electrologist to pluck it out. So, the, so it's it's worth doing. You'd like to, you know, you're in the ballpark of estrogen use with these patients if you suppress spontaneous erections. The patients are still having spontaneous erections. You know, the testosterone level is going to be over 50, and you, you, you're going to have to do something about that because they hate it. And we'd like to be able to affect the the facial bone structure and skeletal changes. And some of those things actually occur at, well after the genital changes. So we never used to consider GnRH analog for the later pubical boy who affirms a female identity. But now for some who have sort of late puberty, at least with respect to the face, we can prevent some of the angularity in the brow, the zygoma, the, the chin, the Adam's apple, maybe even voice, even though we may not be able to affect height that much, but it can make a big difference in gender attribution. And you all know what that means now. So um, how was I encouraged to do this work when I uh, saw my first patient and I actually started to bring some patients in as a part-time member of the, uh, of the endocrine division? I wanted my colleagues to see these people, both parents and teens, and adults, and it, and you just have to know Dr. Kriegler. At that time, he was still coming to all our conferences. And remember, he was the one who treated CAH. 
And his colleagues were the ones who said they knew what the secret of gender identity was. Well, in his North Carolinian twang, this most liberal of men uh, said, I remember he, he stood up in front of the group and he said, my colleagues think they understand gender identity, but they are running around uninhibited by knowledge. <laughs> and then he said something else to me after he saw my patient. And remember, I talked about all those different forms of sex and gender. He said, your patients break all the rules. That's what makes them so fascinating. There is nothing in their genotype, their serum levels, their their family history, their desi desired gender, and the sex on the part of their parents, birth order, nothing. And there's nothing you can find to explain why this kid, and, and now he would say any more than you can explain why that kid is gay. He, you know, he, he, he would say that. He said, so we, he, 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 talk about mandate. He said to me, you've got to do this work. He said, you've got to do this work. If you're, if you're going to see adults, you have to figure out something to decide what to do with kids. Because the only way we find out the rules that have been broken is by studying the patients who break them. And that we pediatricians don't see enough of the non-treatment effects of the conditions we don't, we don't take care of or that we refuse to take care of. And most pediatric departments didn't want to have to, anything to do with these patients. Uh, they were very happy that the DSM had them in the psychiatric realm, and then they could shuttle them to medicine at 16 to 18, where there were people like Jack who you know, would welcome them. But the people like Jack were welcoming always people who were phenotypically adults. So for reasons. There I am out in Chestnut Hill, and I have this practice, and all these, uh, about seven adult endocrinologists or internists who did transgender work quit, died, moved, whatever, and they were left with two people who had huge practices of transgender people and adults, mainly, had no one to refer to. But I was taking care of about 30 of their adult patients. So they... They descended on me and said, we need you to take care of these. Uh, we need to make referrals. I said, but I'm pediatric endocrinologist. Anyhow, um, then, then I listened to what Dr. Kriegler said, and Dr. Kriegler and, and my chief, actually, because I brought people like Ben out who were training in adult and endocrinology, they, they said, well, we, we can get you malpractice covered because you're training. And I said, even though I don't know anything, about, about it but I learned a lot. I learned that, that the big challenge was attribution, that they were fighting their habitus, their height, their, their acral size, their facial bone structure, the male pattern, their beautiful baldness uh, and beards. Um, the vocal cords that were lengthened were permanently so, and while there are people who will do surgery on them, it's a real risk. I uh, mentioned the loss. The losses were, um, I mean, the, the, the partners, the family, the jobs, the friends, and for four of them themselves, proving that essentially untreated, I mean, the, the data shows that untreated transgender people between the age of 16 and 25, if they are not supported by family, have a 45% chance of attempting suicide. In, one of the highest in the world, and you know, I personally lost four of the adults. Uh, and when Louis Gorin look, writes about what do they die, you know, he followed 3,500 people that he took care of in starting the program in Amsterdam, and he wrote, what, "Of what do they die?" And everyone is sort of going, "Oh, how many thromboembolic phenomenon? How many of this, that, and the other thing?" That's BS. What they died of is, is, dis, uh, is a dysfunctionality that came with having to spend a good part of their life before they got to Dr. Gordon and the losses that they had incurred. And so suicide and substance abuse and all the bad stuff that comes with being dislocated and not accepted were the things that came back to haunt them, and that still goes on.
The other thing to keep in mind is it's interesting. When people attempt self-harm, their attempts are in the mode of their affirmed gender. So that affirmed females are much more likely to take pills and survive. And affirmed males are much likely to do what men do. Much more violence, use of guns, use of uh, uh, single car accidents, etc. So, the so where men do attempt less in general, they're more. I hate to say, use the word successful, uh, but they're more likely to complete uh, a suicide attempt. So I get much more uh, when I hear the word this stuff coming out from a person who's on testosterone. I take it much more seriously. I take it seriously anyway, but it's even more serious. So um, I thought I had to get knowledgeable, because I heard something was going on in Holland. I ended up at a conference in London, and the Dutch came up and presented a, a protocol that I thought was absolutely brilliant. It was based on the fact that these just prepubertal kids who are all in dressed opposite to what you expect. And if you don't know it by now, you could dress up prepubertal kids in the opposite clothing and earrings and whatever, and, uh, and jewelry and, and, and um, Dora the Explorer and whatever. And, um, and no one will say boo when you send them to the opposite bathroom. But so it's puberty that makes the difference, right? So what they decided was, well, let's stop puberty. Because the puberty these kids are getting is not the puberty they want. And they're too early to make a final decision. So they need to be carefully watched and investigated. But whatever's done should be reversible. Now, that reversibility came in part from the work of Ken Zucker, who, by the way, is so vilified. But I admire Ken. Uh, I, I dispute him on many reasons. But most people don't know that he was the first person. He probably sent more people for pubertal suppression before any of us even knew about it in North America. He just wasn't doing it in an academic center. He had Jerry Bain, who was a, a private practicing doctor. Because Ken showed that, uh, that kids who act in a cross-gender way who are prepubertal, 80% of them will not be transgender. Many of them will be gender variant or gay or whatever. But no, and there is no way to predict when they're prepubertal who is going to be truly transgender. And it will be a tremendous benefit if, again, young people, you find some way of our knowing who it is. Because if we did know that, we would know who should be socialized, who should have their name changed as a very young child. It does seem to me that the parents, you know, I'm seeing it from the other end, so I only see the ones who really are transgender. But, the, but when I see the subset whose parents say for the first utterance, the kid said, I am not a girl, uh, you know, and who make a, a political statement out of everything related to gender, then I wonder whether they fall within a special group, but nobody's been able to really get at it. So, um, but the 20% who, at the time of beginning breast budding or gonadal enlargement, the earliest signs of puberty, decompensate. Because you have to remember, these kids prepuberty may be doing this. They go to bed at night, and they look down, and they look at their genitals and say, and pray that God will change it. And I hear it predominantly from people of faith. That, that God will do it for them. And they get up in the morning, and they're disappointed that it's, everything is still the same. I think that a lot of these kids go through uh, to adolescence thinking, well, when I go through puberty, it will come out in my affirmed gender. And then what happens is it doesn't. And for them, it's like Pinocchio becoming a donkey. It is. It, it is the ultimate, and they know what that what it means, and they know which way it's going to take them. So um, 
Ken said that of the 20% who persist at 10 or 2 are really transgender and they don't go back. They do know that if you do pubertal suppression, hardly any of them will reverse uh, the, back to their genet genetic sex and, and, and the identity consistent with their genetic sex. So these are the people I want to see because we only had so much to work with. So the Dutch said, okay, let's take a look at them and females 10 to 12 is the age where these things happen and males 12 to 14. What a country, small enough to be southern New England, one center, national health that is respected and has no option other than it, okay, no private care. Um, and doctors don't move around, patients don't move around, followed for life. And everything is done in one place. The data is unbelievable. So they were going to suppress puberty, treat them as if they have precocious puberty. Because GNRH has been used for precocious puberty, uh, usually in girls, but it was done by Dr. Kriegler. He and Bill Crowley at the Mass General combined patients, and there's a 30-year follow-up of them. And when they stopped the drug in early puberty, they went into normal female puberty. They ovulated. Their mothers, they're fine. Their bone densities are fine. So it has a wonderful safety record for that. So, um, and then you could wait and hold back cross-sex steroids until 15 or 16 when you can have a reasonable discussion about the use of medications that are going to give them permanent voice change, put breasts on that would have to be removed, um, you know, and muck up the gonads. So um, I'm going to skip through this, guys. I'm sorry. You've already been through this. And we understand now that we're, what we're doing with GNRH analog are basically we're using a drug that sits on the receptor for GNRH, which is normally given in pulsatile fashion in the hypothalamus. But if you have this analog sitting on the receptor, then new GNRH cannot, in pulsatile fashion, come down and hit and cause the release of um, LH and FSH. And so basically, it shuts things down. Uh, different drugs have different, uh, it takes a different period of time to do it. So the Dutch did this. This is a, a genetic. Uh, uh, female at 19, she's five foot nine. She probably considers herself short because she's in Holland, uh, uh, which is the tallest people, the tallest people in the world. Um, but you know, she never had um, she she never had breasts to be removed. She never had a period. Okay. Um, now they don't get bottom surgery because they don't do it any better than we do, even though they pay for it. They could get it done, but very few opt for it. Great example. Nine-year-old genetic male. Send her to the ladies' room. You think that's a problem? Don't think so. But uh, watched carefully for the first increase in gonadal size, at which point put on GNRH analog. And then around 15, she, um, she was... Remember, while still having testes that are not growing, she was given estrogen. There she is at 15. Okay. Um, at 18, she had surgery. That's all natural breasts. She's had. Um, so I saw these kids, and I said, "We can do this. Why? Why? Why don't we do this?" So we started to do this in 2007 when we started the clinic. And uh, we insisted that patients be in counseling for six months, be at least 10 or two, have referral letters. Both custodial parents had to agree and no serious psychopathology. Okay? But there are limitations. GNRH is not covered by insurance. What is, is, it's, at the time we were starting, GNRH could cost $1,500 a month if it was Lupron. Um, so not too many people in the pediatric endocrine community were comfortable treating. Um, and then we hit on something that has allowed us to make it affordable. 
Our friends in urology told us that the drug uh, that goes by the name Vantis, which is basically the same as the pediatric equivalent that for that can cost $16,000 an implant, these go, they have to go through Medicare, thankfully, and Medicare would only pay 5500 And private urologists can get it for half price, and they're turning the benefit over to the patient. Plus, it, it stays in two to three years. So now we've cut the price down from 1500 a month to $100 a month. And so we now have patients, who, and they take a credit card. So now we, we have patients, we, you know, we, my friend, the urologist, does this, and we now can start to collect data on patients who can, they can afford it now. And so uh, my second patient actually uh, was around in the, Jackie's now about, this is about 10 years ago, uh, came from England where she was a refugee because they wouldn't treat anyone until 16, even though they worked her up to the hilt, said she, we determined she was going to be six feet five with her male genotype. And um, she was just, be, we were having people watch her to see when she increased canal size. When she did, she came to us. Her mother was able to get uh, GnRH analog from uh, Canada. And we started her on that, but because of her height, I put her on estrogen at 13 to close her epiphyses uh, early. And she's about closed now. This is on a six, she's 16 in this picture. She is, uh, she, she had just had plastic, they, they did genitoplastic surgery. I don't like to call it SRS because you're not reassigning somebody's sex. You're doing a genitoplastic surgery. Um, and she issues at 16 just after having it done. They won't do it at 16 in Thailand anymore. They have to be 18. But even more impressive, on the far right, she's a, she is a, um, in, she, she's in the semifinals at this point in the Miss England competition. And it was very funny, actually. Uh, I was speaking to her mom. I said, well, how did the committee deal with the issue? Did they have a wrestle with her genotype? They said, some people did. But one of the people on the committee pointed out that she, she's a B cup natural. And, and, and they pointed out that uh, she, she's flying on more natural uh, equipment than, than most, almost everyone else in the competition. <laughs> so, uh, so how could they not? Uh, and then, and then she teased me on, on British BBC national TV because she was offered a modeling contract, and she said, "You know, I'm only 5'11. I'd be better off if I was 6'1." <laughs> Go figure. Our patients who've come in, uh, we looked at the, at the at 158. We now have 175 patients since 19, 2007. They are on average too old. Uh, the average age of males is 14.3. Uh, still work. You can still do a lot with them, but 15-year-old females, genetic females, you can't do as much with. Uh, you can see the growth of our program over time. I just want you to look at when parents look back. The, 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 oh, one thing is that males and females, when you look at under 21-year-olds, the data will always show equality. Uh, equal numbers of males and females, whereas when you go up into the adult literature, they find three times as many male to females as female to males. But no matter what they are, that's why the red and the blue are, are, de are sex determined. But the look at how many of them declared gender dysphoria before age five. And this is these, this is our first visit data, okay? And uh, self-mutilation, history of suicide attempt, in spite of all the family support that you saw, both parents coming in, et cetera, still 18% self-mutilated and 12%. Um, um, depression and anxiety remain to me. We saw those things go right out the door as the elevator opened and let them off the floor of our clinic. Didn't even wait to see it. The minute they knew they were going to be taken care of. Um, special circumstances, we thought we invented, we discovered it, but no. The Dutch and many others had noted that about 10% of the uh, kids who present with gender identity disorder, significant, uh, are in the autistic spectrum. And that to me is very interesting from a basic science point of view because I consider the autistic spectrum to be a wiring issue in the brain. I consider a, my th feelings about uh, gen about um, transgenderism and the wiring issue in the brain. 
And I think if you have one wiring issue and you have another, you you get the wires crossed some, at some point. And I think neuroimaging, some of which has been promising so far, is going to be uh, better. The future is looking brighter. brighter. Uh, it'll really help if the DSM-6 takes transgenderism completely out and puts it in the medical place where it belongs. Because it is unquestionably, the way these people respond to proper treatment with psychosocial support of their families shows that, that um, it is the medical treatment that allows the psychiatric condition to fade. Um, so um, famous patients uh, that say it all. This is Nicole on the left, Jonas on the right, identical male twins, okay, born in Maine. They are now high school juniors. Um, they were both put on pubertal, uh, um, Nicole was put on pubertal suppression at age um, 12. They're 14 in this picture. What you see is what Nicole would look like if we did nothing. That's the point. There's the biological control of doing nothing. And he's in early puberty. He's, he looks 16, if you think of it. And that's what Nicole would look like. You see the growth spurt change. You see the bones in the face. You see them. Those are all the things that you can't turn around and which devastate kids. This is what they look like now. She's in three-inch heels. That's why she's you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Nicole was uh, honored by the president. The family was honored by the president for their work in overturning discriminatory rules in Maine and invited to his. Our president has an annual luncheon in the spring for heroes in the GLBT community. Okay? He doesn't get enough credit for that. And they were invited. And this is, a, this is what we're dealing with, a child who decides, who, who family knows is transgender. And uh, she enters uh, Boston Latin School as a seventh grader uh, and changes her name. And all the other kids who knew were in elementary school were told that she's going to be now Ella, not her previous name. And would they please be so kind as to respect that and not make a thing of it and sort of keep it to themselves? And they did. And it was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen because she left to go to, by choice, she was accepted to an art school in Boston. And there were a whole bunch of kids who didn't know her from elementary school and didn't know her story. So she wrote a Facebook letter and a personal letter to all these kids who were good friends and who supported, who were, and, and didn't know. And it was basically, I, I wanted to tell you, but I couldn't tell you at the time. I hope you don't mind. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm sorry that I didn't tell you earlier, but I'm not sorry for who I am. Well, um, we're closing up. In 2007, we were one program. I've spent a lot of time on the road. We've. People on my team have. Uh, uh, we're having a meeting, and people were RSVPing, and lo and behold, we turned around and we said. Holy Toledo, there are 35 places in North America now where people can, academic medical centers, pediatric centers, where people can be treated. And they're growing one to two a month because the young people will not accept the, anything less than the best and current for the people they have known and care about as former roommates and friends and colleagues. And um, you, have, you have the websites. I'm sorry I went a little bit over. I just want to tell you that um, there's nothing greater as a sort of end of career, uh, towards the end of career. Um, <laughs> No, I mean, it's seriously, I mean, when you get to be over 70 and you look at, 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 at not what you've done, but what you, who you're going to see tomorrow, um, and um, you think about how it's going to affect you. I've been affected in different ways by every single patient. I've learned from every single patient. And um, anybody who helps a person 
affirm who they really are, to be who they really are, will that physician, nurse, any front desk person, doesn't matter who, will themselves be permanently transformed? Thank you. So I'm, I am conscious of the time, and there is a conference that will begin at 9.15. I would like for those who are not part of the conference, but who are interested in asking questions or interplaying with Norman for a moment, please use the time between now and when you have to leave for that. And the conference attendees, you'll have plenty of time later to interact with our guest speaker. I want to thank you for your inspirational talk and for the obvious demonstration of caring that you showed to us. So thank you, Norman, for being here.